This is a Northern Miner podcast, Miner Moment. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast, Miner Moment, number 11. I'm your host, John Cumming, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. Miner Moments are quick-hit, one-topic items, and for this one, we have Orca Gold CEO Richard P. Clark. He was speaking at our Canadian Mining Symposium in late April in London, and uh, what I did was was a full-sponsored investor presentation what I did was I pulled out all the times he talked about the Sudan generally because uh, Richard has real insight into this country. He's a trailblazer there. You know, the Sudan is very interesting. Uh, the last six years has been a major artisanal gold mining rush, one of the biggest in the world. This has pushed the Sudan from having virtually no gold production, There's no, there are no commercial mines in the Sudan, to being number two in Africa after South Africa. I should add that Orca Gold has some heavy hitter backers. The top three shareholders are Lucas Lundin, personally, Ross Beatty, and Richard P. Clark himself. Richard, uh, his claim to fame before Orca was uh, running Redback Mining, which had their uh, big assets in Western Africa, sold to Kinross. Richard has uh, gathered all the old management team, uh, quite a few of them from Redback, and they're now running Orca Gold. So let's get Richard's comments on the Sudan. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank, obviously, the Northern Miner and the Government of Canada for, for hosting this event. Uh, it, it works extremely well for, for us because about a year ago, uh, management of Orca decided to come become based in the UK. And so it's, I live down the street, so this works out really well. Uh, it's sort of apropos that we're, we're having this event here in, in uh, Canada House, we're part of the Government of Canada, uh, because the story that is developed with Orca, particularly in regards to Sudan, is one of political perception. And you know that's the case in any country you go into. What is the jurisdiction like? What are the politics like? What are the people like? And that's the real issue that we have with Sudan, not the project. The project's turned out to be amazing, and I'll explain as we go through. We founded Orca about six years ago and went into Sudan. And when we got there, we actually started uh, looking at base metals. And we made a discovery in, near the border with Eritrea and it's what geologists called a technical success. In other words, it wasn't economic. But it got us into Sudan, and uh, based in Khartoum, the capital city, and we heard about a, a very huge gold rush that was going on in the north. And so uh, we sent some of our people up to the north and discovered that there were th- literally tens of thousands of Sudanese mining gold, um, and, and that started in earnest about six years ago. And so. We were very uh, lucky to get onto a concession, Block 14, and do a deal with the local owner, and we've been working hard on that ever since. And as I'll go through we've had, and explain to you, we've had, we've had a lot of success. So where are we? We're very far up in the north of Sudan, right on the Egyptian border. The closest uh, uh, project in production to us is Sentiment Sukari project, about 600 kilometers to the north. And as I said, when we got there, the place was screaming with artisanal miners. 
And in our concession alone, there was somewhere between 10 and 15,000 artisanal miners on Block 14. Now, that may sound a little bit daunting, and for those of you who have operated in other parts of the world, say in South America or West Africa, artisanal mining or garimperos are a major problem, and nowadays everybody asks about that. For us, it was completely the opposite. The artisanal mining, so there, you have to understand something about Sudan. There is no geological database for the country. There's been hardly any geology done in Sudan other than very, very wide macro uh, large-scale mapping. So when you go into Sudan as an explorer, and this is, you know, I, I argue that the best in the world are the Canadians and the Australians for this, and we go in and we look at something and we look at the ground and go, where did we begin? And I think you roll up your sleeves and you dig in and you create your own database, and that's what's going on in Sudan. So unlike most other places where our colleagues operate, there's nothing here. Uh, these properties have never been looked at before. We're the first ones that drill them. And so you're going to have some successes and you're going to have some failures. But lucky enough, how we reduced our odds in that regard is we followed all the artisanal miners. So we can't claim any genius here, really. What we've done is basically looked at every little operation that the artisanals had on our property, and we focused on what we were looking for, which was great big, huge alteration zones. And the first one we discovered that artisanals were on ended up being our discovery that we've now taken into a revised PEA and soon we will announce a, a feasibility study on. To summarize the artisanal situation, in five to six years, Sudan has gone from a relatively minor gold producer in Africa to the second largest gold producer in Africa and there is no commercial mines. It is all from artisanal mining and there's about 1.5 million of them throughout the country mining gold. And last year, under the government's figures, they produced something like 100 tons of gold by artisanal mining. The key uh, to this, as I said, this is just to highlight some of the other operations in the area and the Nubian Shield. Most of the operations are in Saudi Arabia. Uh, the ones that everybody knows, or most people know about in Sudan and Eritrea would be the Hassai project that was owned by La Mancha, and also Bisha, which was Nevsan down in Eritrea, and then to the north, Sakari, owned by Sentiment. So, that's it for one of the best geological belts in the world to date. So we ended up finding two deposits, the main one which we call GSS, which is in the center of the screen, and then off to your right is Wadi Doom. The key to these projects in the desert is you have to have water. Without water, mines don't work. And so when we realized we were onto something, then we had to go and find water, and it was quite a process because, again, no exploration. And if we had more time, I could go into the history of water and, and, and this part of the world. But suffice it to say, at the end of the day, we discovered water where the British discovered water back when Kitchener was going down to um, take back Khartoum from the Mahdi after he had killed General Gordon. And they drove the railway down from Egypt, and they stopped in the middle of the desert and said, we cannot go any farther unless we find water. And the Egyptian engineers, sorry, the uh, British engineers went out with divining rods and they dug a well, and that they called Station 8, and that is still there today, and it's the only well. The aquifer we discovered, which is huge, is just slightly north of Station 8. So even with all our technology, at the end of the day, the water was first discovered by diviners. Today, the feasibility study for GSS and Wadi Doom is contemplating a throughput of 6 million tons. That is made possible because of the amount of the water we have discovered.
And critically, and people asked me last year, you know, what keeps you awake at night now with Sudan? I can tell you, it, it isn't many of the issues other people would have. For me, it was, can we secure and show the world that we can get legal title to water? And we applied for our water rights in December, and, and the government of Sudan issued them by the end of January. It took six weeks. So today, in the last numbers we've put out, we have a measured indicated inferred resource of just about four million ounces. And as I said, that came from nothing, starting at nothing. At the moment, in terms of the feasibility work we're looking at, it's about two and a half million ounces under the feasibility stu study mineable. And we're in the process of drilling now, and we're looking to make that higher. And our objective is to get up to three million ounces before we actually put out the study. As I said at the outset, Sudan is an amazing endowment for gold and all sorts of other minerals, but it's been a pariah state for almost 20 years. So the real problem has been economic sanctions that existed on the country, predominantly from the United States. A lot of other co countries had sanctions, including Canada, but Canada's sanctions were limited to military interaction between Canadians and Sudan. So as a Canadian company, Orca was able to go there on a commercial basis. American companies, any American interest, couldn't have anything to do with Sudan. And that effectively crippled Sudan in the long run. I mean, it's, a, it's an example you could argue that economic sanctions by the United States were successful in Sudan, but it took them 20-some-odd years. But what that culminated in is Sudan splitting into South Sudan and North Sudan, and we're in North Sudan, and it's pr predominantly Muslim, it's Arab, it is a merchant commercial culture, the people are very moderate, the people are politically and religiously tolerant, and they respect authority. So I think when all the people that have now come to Sudan and come to our project are amazed, we have no security. We have a 100-man camp. We haven't had security. You never see guns. You walk around Khartoum very safely. Western women walk in Khartoum without head coverings. You can wear jewelry, makeup. There's a Christian church right down the road from our office. It's an amazing place. The problem with the sanctions is it created a, a perception that Sudan was a horrible place, the people were horrible, they were militaristic, they were violent, human rights violations every minute of the day, completely untrue. You know, when we go and look at places to go and invest in the world, we don't take personal security risk. We're not going to do that to our people, but we are going to make our own assessment of political risk. And that's what we've done, and that's why our group has been pretty successful. So Sudan, very rapidly changing. The sanctions were effectively removed in October of last year. The last threshold for Sudan investment, they, the Americans still kept them on the list of state-sponsored terrorists. That is a big lobby that's going on that we expect they'll be off that list within the next six months and co in coinciding with the renegotiation and settlement of their external debt. So the World Bank's going to come back in. Uh, we're going to see Sudan emerge onto the world stage from an economic perspective, potentially in a position within a couple of years to issue their own bonds, and away they go and their economy takes off. So it really is an amazing time to be investing in, in Sudan. To give you sort of an indication of the interest that's getting, we were just at Sudan's third annual mining symposium in Khartoum about three weeks ago. We were at the first two, and the first two, you could have played a baseball game in the stadium and not hit anybody. Uh, there was nobody there. This year there was a thousand people and almost every gold mining comp company in Africa was represented. Uh, so it is changing dramatically and we're getting lots of neighbors and the more the merrier for us there. 
Hi there. I just wonder, can you give us a bit of insight into the code, the mining code in Sudan, um, royalty regimes, length of tenure, etc.? Um, please. It's a bit of an evolving process. So the concessions that we have are historical concessions. They're older ones. They were based on oil and gas business. So our original concession was 7,000 square kilometers. Today, Sudan is issuing concessions and they're 300 square kilometers. The laws, and you got to understand, Sudan was based on a British system that has, you know, it now has a, a Sharia law component, but the main structure is, is common law and commonwealth. The law of the contract, there's international arbitration, it's obviously Sudanese law, but again, with a big British component. The contract, interestingly enough, is in English. The governing language of the contract is English. There's an Arab writer, but if there's any dispute, the English governs. So the, the, the concepts for ownership or title are very similar to a lot of other jurisdictions. And in this case, you know, you've got a, the rights to explore, you've got to shed over a period of time, you've got to file expiration um, programs. And at the end of the day, if you find something, you convert it to a mining lease, just like you would in Canada or other places. And the government takes, depending upon the contract you have with them, anywhere from a 20 to a 30% carried interest in the company that holds the mining leases. So the, but the carried interest is when we get to get our money back before we pay out dividends. So it's, it's not a, like absolute free carry. The royalty, there's a 7% gold royalty, and I've learned in my experience in Africa, do not touch the NSRs, because that's instant cash to the government. They're prepared to maneuver a little bit on tax, on financial, other financial terms, soft items, but the moment you go in and talk about royalties, your life gets extremely difficult. So we've left that alone, and we've been able to massage other aspects of it, but the tax regime is 15% corporate tax, so when you balance it all together, Sudan's about in the middle. But the interesting thing is title is, is, is good, and there's a lot of different legislation around that, whether it's a water act, a financing act, an investment act, etc. So I was pleasantly surprised. And uh, you know, I used to do this. Uh, I was a mining lawyer before I started running companies. So the first thing I go into these places is look at, can we actually operate under this law? You're dealing with artisanal mining, mentioned. Uh, how are you dealing with them? Do you involve them in your mining process in the okay. way that you buy their proceeds? That's a good question. Look, the art artisanals are, are illegal. However, the government has allowed them to be there because that's been where they've been making their revenue. We have worked uh, side by side with the artisanals, always on the understanding when it was time for them to move, they would move. Okay. In many other jurisdictions, that ends up being a very violent process and difficult. It's not something we're going to put out a big news release on, but over the last two weeks, all the artisanals were moved off of our, what is going to be our mining leases. There was no violence. They went peacefully. It was orchestrated by the government. And we took all their names, and when it comes time to going out with jobs and contracts, when we actually get, start getting into production, we have the names of all the people that were working on the areas that we moved them from.